Welcome back. I am Charles Musgrove. Thank you so much for joining us for another exciting episode of Answers That Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove, and you know what we do. We try to bring the nuggets of knowledge about business. So we talk about uh, real life current topics. We talk about the how to run a business better, the things that you need to make sure that you that you take into account when you're running your business. And we try to help, we try to bring the experts to the table. We always have experts, those people that that know, that have the knowledge about the subject that we're talking about, those people that have the business experience, and those people that can really tell an exciting story. And today we are blessed to be joined by Ron Corey. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. You are our special guest for the Answers That Count podcast. Thank you for having me today, Charles. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a great show. And all of you that are watching and listening to this right now, you know this is uh, this is on YouTube and all the all of your favorite podcast channels. So uh, we will join in the radio audience in a in a little bit. So this is some uh, some secret stuff, some of that stuff that you only get on the podcast and on the YouTube channel. And we have Ron is has written a book and it's called Tenacity, and the title of it is a. Vegas businessman survives Brooklyn, the Marines, corruption, and cancer to achieve the American dream. So this is, you know, this is a story of, of that Ron tells of himself. And Ron, I think really to uh, to drive this home, the American dream. When people talk about the American dream, that is, there's a tie-in to the American dream, business, and success, and not just that you're always going to have success, but that you're going to have the opportunity to succeed. And I, it's, uh, you know, I think that that topic in this book and your experiences are so relevant to, to our show and, to, and for the listeners and the viewers of our show to be able to, to hear it from you. So thank you. Thank you for joining us and kind of set this up and, and uh, tell us, I think a good start to this is, is uh, and I may ask you to repeat a part of this so you, you can leave some of the juice for a little bit later, but tell us what, what was the, the reasoning for writing this book? What, what led you to that? Well, the book is an autobiography of my experiences, very little of it growing up in Brooklyn as a teenager, why I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1972 a little bit about my experiences in the military uh, and how I ended up being stationed on the West Coast from New York and what brought me to Las Vegas. And that's sort of the lead in to the main storyline, which is being in Vegas 45 years, going into 20 different businesses, developing neighborhood casinos, a screen printing company, a limousine service, among a host of other industries why I did it, and what motivated me to try to prevail. You know, it's not always a desire to earn more money. Sometimes you just have it in your gut that you want to do something different. You want to take on a challenge, and you want to see how you can do with it. And that sort of motivated me into going into business for myself after working as a casino dealer for my first five years in Las Vegas. Interesting. I think that is, uh, you know, to... To bring that to our current times, we are. This is this is uh, July twenty eighth when we're doing this recording. It's uh, about twelve thirty Eastern time. So, Ron, I like I like to say the the time and the date you do the recording because, man, you know what's been happening over the past four or five months is is uh, we seem to be going through changes 
in, at the speed of light. I mean, it's just crazy what's happened this year. And, and with, the, with the government, with the shutdowns, with COVID, with, with all the racial unrest that we see in the streets, you know, there's just so much that happens so quickly. And to kind of bring that into focus, the, the casino business and the entertainment business, that is, that's one that, you, that, that we see now in the news that's really been impacted by COVID. Uh, so I think that's going to be really relevant to talk about today because that's a, that's a current challenge that not only you are feeling, but across the United States, people that have restaurants that have bars, maybe they're not in a, in a casino operation, but that, that is real life stuff that those business owners and the businesses are dealing with. Oh, yes. And many people who are watching your podcast or listening to the radio segment may not know it, but in Nevada, we have a governor who has closed down the bars throughout the state. Um, you know, a bar isn't just a place to go knock down some drinks, catch a buzz, and get on with your day or night. Uh, this is a social environment. They are gaming parlors. They are restaurants. In fact, at my four taverns, I'm proud that my, my places were meeting places envisioned by me long before the TV show Cheers a place you could go, feel safe, be comfortable, unwind, a place where everybody knew your name. I know that's a popular part of the Cheers theme, but we did it first. My first tavern was in 1979, and we were a neighborhood place where between 79 and 1989, uh, when, when I finished the completion of four different build-outs, four locations around town, well over 200 people met in my social environments, got married, started families. We, we were a destination resort type place where you didn't just go get a few drinks. You went in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You might have met your future spouse there. And it was the start of the lives of many people in Southern Nevada because of the theme and the setting that I tried to establish a safe environment where people knew the place was run well, the rules were enforced, and people could be treated with respect and, and actually enjoy some social gatherings. Ron, you're, you're describing a place that sounds almost like small town, small town America that, that is so inviting that is, I don't think the, I don't think people have that vision when they think of Las Vegas as a, as that kind of community uh, place, but it sounds like what you created many years ago was that community feel. What you, and I think your your description uh, or your comparison to to the Cheers TV show is is uh, is very well put. And you, you know, just watching that show, that's kind of what you felt. And it was a gathering place. It was a community. It was where people met more than just to to have a drink. It was a is a play, a social gathering. Absolutely, and and I tried to stay. Uh, current and active in my community. I served on different boards as a volunteer to help the community grow. I was uh, the chairman of the board of the local uh, Las Vegas Food and Beverage Association, which was a national, a national and a state organization, um, and, and spearheaded efforts with legislation changes that affected our industry. You know, I lived through the tavern industry when it was a common practice to pound down 15 drinks. And back then, not that I espouse over drinking, don't get me wrong, but it was at a time in society 
when if you had too many drinks and a police car pulled you over, they'd take your keys and call you a cab. Then in the 80s, as drinking and driving enforcement became a reality, uh, it certainly became less popular to hound, pound down a lot of drinks. You'd have a couple to be social. And my place was the first place in the Las Vegas community where we offered free cab rides home. I opened an account with the local cab company where if anybody felt like they had had too much to drink, they could call a cab, we would pick up the tab, they'd get a ride home and they could come back and get their car the next day. I think it's a, a contributing factor to being a good societal member to realize that you're in a business that in the mid eighties wasn't very popular because of drinking and driving uh, awareness. So I try to find the solution to the problem and free cab rides home was my solution to that problem. We trained our people in alcohol awareness. They had to take a class before they could get their bartender's card to make sure they were trained properly and not overserve someone. But it's a very difficult business when a guy could walk in and if he carried his liquor well, he might have had six drinks at the place between me and where they got off work. And then they stop at my place for a few more. As far as my bartender knew, they were serving them their first drink and only through proper training would they know how to observe for when this person might have had enough and either light pour them or not serve them at all and continue to be a good member of your local community and society and not put a drunk on the road, but still try to stay in business. Uh, it's a tough balance, which I think we, we certainly found a solution to. But not only was it a social environment where people would meet their future wives or husbands, but we were a stopping place, my suburban lounges on both sides of Las Vegas, where a guy running, in fact, a guy running for the district attorney's position years ago, his mother was silent film star actress Clara Bow. His name was Rex Bell. When he decided to run for the district attorney's seat, his uh, political advisors said, you need to meet the community. And my place was one of the first stops for people running for judges, council seats, county commission seats, and even the district attorney's office to meet and be seen by people, to meet them, to answer their questions. And I'm proud of the fact that my place was just such a place where people would come that were running for office to meet members of the community. Interesting. That's very interesting. And it, your, your places of business are sounds like they're frequented mostly by locals. They're not, they're not heavily influenced by, by the tourist. That's true. Yeah. We were, my four locations were locals environments where, you know, people want to drink close to home. So it wasn't a long walk back in the morning to get their car or it wasn't a long drive home after they had a couple of drinks. And as the drinking and driving awareness phase grew from the eighties, what was deemed to be impaired changed. You know, it wasn't always 0.08, which a lot of people may not know. It used to be higher, where you could have more drinks before you were legally impaired. And when it hit 0.08, it's quite limiting. So here I am selling a product that it's not legal to have too much of and go home. 
So I've got to actually deny you access to my product to be socially compliant. That's right. You have to uh, limit your, your sales revenue in order to be compliant and to be a good citizen. Sure, sure. Think of other industries. How many businesses that sell a retail product that they have to say to someone, don't buy too many of my widgets? Right. Not very quite, many. <laughs> quite a challenge. Interesting. So when I want to I come back to, to your business type and get your, um, what you've done through COVID and the expectation of that. So let's don't hit that now. Let's save that for the radio show. Cause I think that'll be, that'll be very helpful for people to uh, get your take on that, on what you've done so far, your survival so far in that business and, and the, and the step forward. So uh, Ron, I want to make sure that we give um, the correct attention to, to your book. So you also have a website that people can go to, to get more information about you and to take a look at the book. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, the website is roncoreyauthor.com. Uh, here's a color version of my book, Tenacity. And my last name is spelled C-O-U-R-Y. So it's roncoreyauthor.com. And that would give them a quick link to Amazon. It'll also tell them more about the book so they could determine if they're interested before they buy one. And quite an interesting, unique aspect to my autobiography when I learned by a, from a book consultant I retained that today's books are sold to the tune of 25% in audible version, I wanted to make my audio book something that stood out. So I hired a familiar voice in actor Michael Madsen, who is in Reservoir Dogs, Donnie Brasco, Kill Bill, 300 other movies he's made. And I actually sought him out through his agent, hired him, brought him to Vegas for a week. And we spent a week in a recording studio where it is his voice, if someone buys the audible version of my book, that is reading my autobiography. Very good. I like that. That's, uh, I, I think you're right. Most people want to uh, get the audio part of the, the book right now. I guess only 25%. So that's not a majority, but that's got to be an increasing percentage of people that listen. Uh, they, they read the book through the audio portion, if you will. So. <laughs> I actually listened to my own audiobook, even though I knew it front to back. Every morning as I showered and got dressed, I put it on my Bose speaker in my bath area and listened to Michael read the book back to me um, every morning for 30 minutes. And I even knew my story. And it was enjoyable to hear his, to hear his take on it because I was in the studio to make sure he pronounced names and words properly for the audible version. So the editor would have my notes as to what to correct, what to edit out. But over five days, eight to 10 hours a day, we worked that long to come up with a five and a half hour audio book of tenacity. And he did a great job. It was wonderful getting to know him. And uh, quite interestingly, people hear stories about celebrities. He's the first one I've ever hired. So I didn't know what I'd be in for. I put him in a suite at the Bellagio when he came to town, and uh, we planned on meeting at the base of the elevator bank every morning at 9 o'clock, and I got him to the sound studio by 9.30, and quite to his credit, every morning at 9 a.m., I was at the base of the elevator bank, and he came off that elevator every morning on time, and we worked until 4 to 6 p.m. each day, 
And it's not easy to sit in a sound studio with headphones and read a book. And the man came to work every day. His work ethic is remarkable. And he actually did a great job. So anyone, whether they get the paperback, hardcover, Kindle, or the audible, audible version of the book, I really found that with the 60-plus professional reviewers that did my book's assessment, all five-star results, people who listen to this program and go on and order a book, I think they'll be not only entertained by the celebrity aspect of the Audible book, but if they get a paperback to keep at their bedside, they'll find it to be motivational, inspirational, and quite entertaining talking about the casino business, getting into the tavern and gaming business, learning a little bit about what it's like being a dealer, and what motivated me to actually tell my story. Good, I like that. And, uh, hey, we need a good story. We need that personal story right now in the, in the times that we're in. So I know a lot of people are seeking motivation, and maybe they've got some downtime right now. So this is a, this is a great time to, to pick up the book to get the audio portion and the audio version, like you said, is, um, is a great listen. So, uh, that works well for me. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, Ron, I thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to take just a, you're going to hear a little bit of music right now. Everybody stay with us because we're going to have a little bit of music, a few seconds, and then we're going to roll right into recording for the, for the radio show and stick around because I doubt we're going to cover everything in the radio show. So we'll do a post show as well. So all of you out there on the podcast or the YouTube stick around for the whole show. So, uh, hold on, John, play us a little bit of music and we'll roll right into the radio show. Welcome to answers that count. If you own a business, you can count on us to give you the answers you need to succeed in all aspects of your business. And now, here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We've got another great show lined up for you. I am Charles Musgrove and your host of Answers That Count. You know what we try to do. We try to bring the answers that can help you run your business better and maybe even make life easier for you and better for you, more enjoyable. So we are... Today's July 28th when we're doing this show recording. And, you know, we're still dealing with COVID on a daily basis. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And we have a special guest in the house. We've got Ron Corey from Nevada. Ron, are you in Las Vegas? I am based in Las Vegas, yes. Ron Corey with us today from Las Vegas. So what do they call that? The, the, the city that doesn't sleep? It's got so many names got a lot of names it's also called sin city yeah so uh we're not going to talk about the sin today even though i'm sure it's it's wherever we are so uh ron is ron's got a lot of experience he's a author of the book tenacity and here's a um this is kind of a cutoff version of what you're going to see ron's going to hold up the book face itself and we're going to talk about his book and we're going to talk about what Ron's experiences are in business. I would call Ron a one of those serial entrepreneurs. Anybody that that creates, that starts 20 businesses, I would put them in the classification of they're, uh, they're an entrepreneur. And they're one of the, if you do that much, you're, Ron, I'm going to call you a serial entrepreneur. Is that fair? I think that's a fair uh, re- accounting of who I am. 
I'm an observational entrepreneur. I'm a niche finder. I try to find something that the town or the state could use and figure out if it's something that I think I can do well or better than it's being done. And then I formulate the concept of a new business. And in 20 instances, I've done that. Listen, everybody likes success, right? I mean, uh, we all uh, take a swing at the plate. We all have the bat in our hand. We get, a, we get to step up and take a swing. Uh, I think that, that in itself, if you, if you step up to the plate and you take a swing, then I would call that success. Uh, it's even more of a success when, you're, when you have uh, business success, you know, when you win at something, when you hit it over the, over the fence. Uh, people fail. That's just a part of, of, the, of the cycle of business. That's the cycle of life. You're going to have failures. That's how quickly you can get back up, what you learn from those failures, and um, how, you, how you go about the next opportunity. So. It's great to, uh, to have you on the show today. I look forward to continuing the discussion. So we, we've been chatting for, for a few minutes before we started sh- uh, the recording for the, for the radio show, and we've had some very interesting discussions so far in your background and how you applied your, the history to the, the entrepreneurial uh, run that you've had and taking, taking, oppor- taking advantage of those opportunities that, that present. And you, it's really identification of those opportunities too. I mean, they don't just call you on the phone and say, hey, I'm an opportunity, come do this. You have to go find it. You have to then assess that risk and take the, take the step to uh, put it into action, to execute. You know, there's a lot of people have a lot of ideas. It's the people that can execute successfully those ideas that, that are truly successful. Yes, you know, my, my book starts out with me describing how I went from being a teenager in Brooklyn into the Marine Corps and how I ended up in Las Vegas. And as far as being an entrepreneur, I was a dealer in a casino for five years and I was standing on a dead game one day and I was thinking that I want to find a way to earn money whether I can go to work or not. You know, my family was burdened with a long history of cancer. My dad, his sisters, and brothers ultimately all died from cancer. So I felt like one day it would plague me, not if, but when. And what happens as I'm starting a family, uh, getting married, having kids, what happens when I can't be the breadwinner? How do I earn for my family? How do I keep my house and my car? So it got me thinking on a dead game one day, what can I do? that if I do it well and it's successful, it'll bring money into the household whether I show up there every day. And I wondered about what type of businesses because I didn't stay in college. I didn't have a degree to become a lawyer or a doctor or an architect. And I started giving thought to what could I do? And that's the entrepreneur's challenge, isn't it? What, What business to go into that they might be successful at? So I became a realtor Something I could do during the day as I dealt at night. And during the course of being a realtor for four years, I actually located a neighborhood tavern in 1979 that I found a way, and the book will go into more detail, but found a way to raise the money to buy that tavern. And I felt it was a business that I could learn on the job, no formal education, because really what's success in a tavern It's a safe, comfortable place that people will come, and you get more people than your competitor tavern does. So uh, through training in the Marine Corps, I could keep it safe, uh, keep the rowdies out, uh, enforce law, 
without having to hire guards, which uh, in the early days, there was no real gaming dollars. We generated revenue by selling drinks, which back then was a dollar a drink or 50 cents a beer, not a great revenue generator. We didn't have, as I said, great gaming revenue, but believe it or not, one of the first video games that came out was Pac-Man and Space Invaders. And each of those big uh, machines on the corner wall would generate $800 a week in quarters. Remarkable amount of revenue. We had two pool tables, which generated $1,200 a week in quarters per table. So these were supplements to income that helped me develop this first tavern by later adding a restaurant so I didn't lose patrons who wanted to eat and said, we'll be back, we're gonna go get something to eat. But they rarely came back because they got comfortable in the next establishment they went to. So I decided very quickly I needed to raise the money to put in a restaurant. And I took that first concept and developed it into a total of four neighborhood taverns where people could go in, spend the evening or day, because this is a 24-hour town. So unlike many cities, at 9 o'clock in the morning, I might get a guy that just spent an eight-hour shift on, a, on another job in a hotel. And, and his night off was starting at 9 a.m. Right. And we'd be a place for them to come relax and have a good time. Right. That's, uh, uh, that's a great story. So you, you basically started that first tavern. And you modified that to a successful model or template that then you replicated in three other times. Is that right? That is correct. Before selling all my business holdings, I built it to four taverns, uh, six car dealerships, a graphics company, a wholesale glass and mirror company, a limousine service, which even today is the shining star of a quality stretch limousine service with tuxedoed chauffeurs unique peculiarities that I brought to an industry that back in 1984 was nothing more than a glorified taxi service. And I opened presidential limousine service then, and it's still operating today. So like you said before, to be repetitive, you, you basically have been in a location, been in the, in, in the environment and have noticed opportunities that business can be created and service people that are in that environment. Yeah, find something you think you can do better than the other guy. And then, as you said, you'll never hit the ball if you don't swing the bat. The only way to keep to, to be in the game is to keep swinging at that bat of opportunity. So uh, my business partner and I purchased a car dealership that was on its knees. In the heyday of uh, uh, 2008 and nine. Uh, before 08 and 09, the crash, uh, they were doing four, 400 cars a month, new car sales. And then when we purchased it in 2010, it had fallen to under 100 cars a month. Wow. And the owner of the business decided to sell rather than keep swinging the bat. We purchased it and built it back up to 400 new cars a month. Uh, and of course, if you're selling new cars, you're taking in trades, and now you have a whole used car inventory to sell to someone who can't afford a new car at that very moment. And uh, uh, the book goes into detail about how that all evolved in my later years in business. So 
still in the uh, tavern business? No, not anymore. Actively in the operations. Uh, I own one site, which is currently a non-restricted food and beverage gaming operation. It operates 35 slot machines, which is 20 more than the standard limit of 15 that the Las Vegas community limits its taverns to. And I'm the landlord of that establishment. Okay, so you own the, the building and the operation. So tell, explain to the audience or go through the process that you've, that you've experienced with the, with the COVID. First, the lockdown. Uh, and you're, you're in Nevada, so they have, I believe, the, is it statewide where they have closed all bars still? Yeah, the governor closed all the bars because of the social environment. He felt that was a very uh, high risk area for people until they got a handle on COVID. And then he reached a point where he reopened them. And then Nevada saw a spike in COVID diagnoses. And he has now closed them all again. And I, I just couldn't imagine still being in that business where each of my establishments would have 25 to 50 employees depending on the size of it. And to have all those people relying on me for their household income and to be forced by the government to close, even if I felt like I had taken steps to run a safe environment, right. um, there's nothing you could do. You just have to find a way to overcome those challenges. Uh, and, and the places that, whether they owe a landlord rent or they own their own property and they, own, they owe a mortgage company a mortgage payment, when you have no income, you've got to go out of your way to reach out to the people you're indebted to and try to work out a deal so you're not facing a foreclosure or an eviction and try to help guide your people into taking state or federal aid that's available to them to get some money coming in to pay their, fa their families so they could buy food while also trying to keep your location viable for when we overcome this with a vaccine or a treatment solution and, and life gets turned back on in an environment, no one, it's unprecedented. No one's ever been through anything like this. We don't know what's gonna come, but what happens when that light switch gets turned back on and I'm told I can lawfully reopen? What happens to all those people who weren't working? I'm not gonna have the customer base with disposable income that I enjoyed pre-COVID. So I would be thinking, about what am I going to do if I'm only going to see a fraction of the business I used to see? How do I pay my bills? The restaurants have reopened, but the governor ordered they only open at 50% of their seating capacity. What are those places going to do when they're limited? In pre presumably, if you can only open 50% of your seating, you're probably at best going to see 50% of your gross revenues. Well, if you were running at a 12% profit margin, what do you do when you're limited to 50% of your gross revenue? There's no way you can hit that profit goal. These are challenges no one's ever seen before, and they're going to have to think outside of the box to prevail in what the next economy is going to bring to them. Absolutely. Ron, we've had guests on our show that have talked about that exact situation that have been restaurant owners here in the state of Florida, in Tallahassee. And that is, um, you're exactly right. You know, their business model is not set up to operate on 50% capacity. The, the margins don't support that. Their model doesn't support that. So 
um, you know, they're, they're faced with some tough decisions. They've gone through a lot of these business owners, a lot in the restaurant and the entertainment business that they've, they've, they've had available the PPP funding and some other government funding, but they've gone through that. They've used those funds. They've used their cash reserves that they may have had stored up. So now as this thing is prolonged and some places are, are considering locking down again or restricting uh, capacity and restaurants and other, other places, other places of business like that, you know, they're, those business owners, they're, they're facing some tough decisions. Absolutely. They're, they're, they don't know what's coming. How do you plan for the unknown? It is a very difficult position to be in, but my book describes not being a quitter. Failure cannot be an option. So you look for solutions to overcome the hurdle that you're confronted with. How do you go around it, through it, or over it? Well, as I think, if I was still operating all my businesses today and I was faced with these challenges, I, I wonder how I would overcome them when I don't even know when the lights get turned back on. When can I serve a customer? If I was in the restaurant business and I was going to be limited to 50% capacity, I believe I would have to raise my prices so that the customers I did see would come in and I could somehow get close to the revenue level that could pay my bills and I could stay in business because I'm no good to anyone if I'm out of business. It doesn't help the property owner if the storefronts are all empty and there are no tenants. It doesn't help the community that the corner mom and pop brick and mortar stores are closed. Uh, I'm, I know I've, I've read Amazon is having a record year because people are ordering product on Amazon. Well, that doesn't help the mom and pops that we all like to frequent, you know, to support our community. And I personally intend to go out of my way to try to support the local businesses around me when they've been starving. And I want them to be there tomorrow and next year and the year after. But they won't be there if people don't think this way and try to provide them some revenue. I, I totally agree. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, we're almost in a situation that the external forces are dictating or limiting what you're able to do. So, uh, you know, you say never quit, always look for a way around over or somehow get through that, that struggle. And business owners are faced right now with, with obstacles that they just, so many of those they can't control, you know, they can't change the 50% capacity. So right. they can raise their revenue. Uh, but that has consequences as well. So, um, you know, there's uh, there these business owners are faced with tough decisions. What can they do to adapt and survive? And maybe survival is something that looks like them after not owning that business. I mean, they have to consider the alternative that survival means I have to stop the bleeding on this business. I have to stop that somehow. So they have to look for alternatives on, on that kind of survival. So, you know, it's, it's tough decisions. And I don't know if you've had, if you've been faced with that in, in, in other businesses that you've owned in the past where it's, there's, you, you have limited options or no options. And maybe the right answer is we have to close and look for another battle, another game to play another day. Well, in one gaming neighborhood property that I developed, 
in an outlying jurisdiction to Las Vegas, I encountered a corrupt city councilman who was a competitor of mine in business. And he had a small town police department that he oversaw with a corrupt police captain who he used to weaponize against me. And they actually created felony charges against me. So I couldn't proceed with my state gaming license for the new place I was building. And my book goes into the detail of the incredible steps they took to keep me from being a competitor of his in private industry and how I overcame those challenges because walking away and redefining survival wasn't an option. I had purchased the property to build this place on for 270,000, paid cash for it. In fact, I sold my limousine company to buy and develop this property. I had 30,000 invested in the architectural construction plans, 270 in the property, and was going to spend over $700,000 building it out. 300,000 alone just in the, the kitchen facility. This was gonna be a large dining establishment. Well, walking away from that investment wasn't a reality for me. It wasn't a survival technique. I couldn't walk away from those dollars. They were too big to me at the time. Right. So I had to stay in the fight. And through hiring a private investigator and fighting with the best legal minds I could hire to clear my name and prove the lies that were made against me, make for a great book. And uh, while I'm not facing the COVID challenges like most businessmen with brick and mortar businesses, but here I am trying to market a book that I've invested a quarter million dollars in making it a book at a time when people are out of work due to COVID, not thinking about spending money on a book. So I'm marketing my book during unprecedented challenging times, not unlike any business. Have to adapt. And I think that's a, that's a good story that, that uh, a lot of people, they would only see that in a, in a movie. So that maybe that's a, that's a story uh, told in a movie as well. So that's interesting. And to finish that story about the corrupt city councilman, I'm assuming that you overcame that and you were able to build and open that business. Yes. Well, I am not going to be a spoiler to, to the book because I want people to enjoy it. Ultimately, after over a year battling him on the streets and in the courts, we beat him and his city in the Nevada Supreme Court. But how we got there is still a story worth telling for your viewers and listeners to consider getting the book, because how we got there is the best part of the story. Right. But the fact that we did prevail, clear my name, I got a gaming license, I got a casino use permit for that location, and it's still operating today. While I don't own it, it is a very successful place operating today. Good. So again, the book is Tenacity. So check that book out and hear the details on the story. So that's, that's good, Ron. Thank you. Yes, and they can hear the details and read about them further at the website for the book, roncoreyauthor.com. Good. Ron Corey. That's C-O-U-R-Y. Ron Corey. Right. Ron, that is, that's, a, that's a good story. So, um, you know, that... 
people are going to be faced with those challenges and they have to adapt to the environment, to the, to the situation, just like you did. Now we're in COVID-19. And what, what is your, I know this is a crystal ball and you're probably uh, somewhat good at crystal balling things. So what is your crystal ball on the, the bar industry, the gaming in, industry, uh, the restaurant industry? What, is that, what does that look like to you post-COVID? Well, if there is a successful treatment and vaccine developed, which we, if we listen to what we hear on the news, Washington is telling us they're very close to that. But what we don't know, because they're going through the human trials right now, is what are the side effects? You know, there are many drugs that solve one problem and create another. You could later find that it deteriorated your liver or kidneys while it solved the problem it was solving. We don't know those answers yet. So when we talk about what the future of the bar and restaurant business is, we will need to know what is the future of COVID? Is it truly cured with the vaccine or is the vaccine an annual vaccine like the flu shot? Whatever the solution, will people be comfortable going out and socializing in public or will 30% of them say, I'm just not doing that anymore. I'm going to have a beer in my backyard with a couple of my neighbors, and that's the future that I foresee for myself, which means that industry is going to be harnessed by what percentage of people are still socializing, eating out. Uh, We don't know those answers. So uh, you're right. It's impossible to have a crystal ball because there are still so many unknowns, not only what the what the unknowns will be when they are known, but what's the timing of it? And how many businesses are going to survive waiting for that to happen? Exactly. Yeah, that's the tough part. You know, there, there's, uh, you, can, you can make a case for, for taking a lot of action. One of the, one of the cases that you could make uh, that you could support is, do we close now, preserve our cash, and try to reopen in the future? Whatever that looks like. Uh, you know, there's, we see the, the, the takeout and the, the drive-through business, they're doing okay. And there are some cases they're even, they're even thriving in this, in this, uh, situation because you have fewer people going to, to dine in, set down restaurants, but they're still, they still want to have somebody prepare their food. They still want to pick up their food. So the alternative is they go through a drive-through or they pick it up and take it home and eat. So, uh, you know, I think that we're seeing, we've already lived through a lot of the, the adaptation of that industry so far. And you can almost, one, one course that you can see is a projection of that. We're going to see more people relying on takeout, pickup, or delivery of, of their food choices. Absolutely. The people are going to be most comfortable at home. So you're seeing lines in front of your local grocery stores. We've never seen that before. If you go at the wrong time of day, you could have 50 people in line waiting to get in because they're limiting the number of people in the store for the spatial distancing rules compliance. So you're seeing by the, by the end of the day, the, the, you can't get a ribeye steak. They're sold out. Or, or the, the shelves are bare when it comes to paper products. I still can't buy a can of Lysol spray. I went shopping this week for my house. And... The, the shelves that Lysol uh, spray w- were on 
are still not shocked, even though the mad rush for toilet paper, which I never understood why people thought we'd run out, but there was a time all the paper shelves were empty. Now that's resolved, but you still can't buy uh, Lysol disinfectant spray. And I, I don't know why. They're still making it. Uh, we talked about the restaurant industry. What do you think about the, the bar industry? Is that going to be in the same boat, or do you think that's even going to be more tenuous than the restaurant business? Well, it's, it's crippled on two fronts. The governor has ordered they stay closed right now, so they don't have a choice. But when he does allow them to reopen, what the, the second challenge of this tangent I'm describing is what percentage of your old customer base is going to be comfortable going into a social environment where your guard is down because you're drinking alcohol? You're going to take the mask off to talk to the people. Who's spraying when they talk? And do these particles stay in the air for one minute or five minutes? I've heard all kinds of scientific answers to that. So when you're walking through the bar to use the restroom, are you walking into a spray that occurred 60 seconds ago? And are you gonna get sick from it? Even with a mask on, are they getting, is it getting in your eyes? These challenges and concerns are gonna be in people's minds. And are they not gonna to go to the local bar? And if the bar only sees 60 to 80% of its old customer base, what percentage of them have the kind of disposable income they used to have because they haven't been working steadily for an untold number of months? Right now we're at seven months, but is it going to be 12 before life gets back to normal? And what can they afford to spend? These bar owners and restaurant operators have no way to plan for the future. So the best thing I could advise them to do is to stay in communication with the people that are your lifeblood, which is your landlord or your mortgage holder, because they, they also have debt. You know, when you, when you send your landlord his rent, he might have 20 tenants in the shopping center you're in. And if only half of them are open for business, he's got a mortgage to pay in all likelihood. He's not a free and clear operation. And without that rental revenue, he can't stay up with his mortgage. So, they need to keep dialogue open so the landlord or mortgage holder will work with them, let them know what challenges they're facing, and try to work out a deal that everyone can live with where he's viable for when dollars are being spent. He can still be there, have the lights turned on. Is the power company being paid? These challenges are unprecedented, unforeseen, and no one can accurately predict what to do with them. No, it's a tough situation, and, and we spent a lot of the show talking about COVID and the effect on businesses that you're so familiar with. Uh, what's happened to the, um, for those out in Las Vegas or wanting to visit Las Vegas, what, what about the, the gaming business? Have they opened up the casinos? The governor has authorized the casinos to reopen, but not all of them have. As you could imagine, many people don't think this through. A hotel has a projected occupancy rate. When they've been shut down for several months, they haven't been taking reservations. So imagine opening this behemoth of expense, which is a hotel casino with seven restaurants and gaming tables and rooms that have maid service 
laundry service. But because they've been closed, they have no reservations. So how many rooms do you open hoping someone will come check in? How many maids do you bring to work until you know your occupancy is at 10, 20, 30, 40%? Why pay all those salaries when there's nobody in the rooms to clean up after? This is such a complex matter to, you don't just open a hotel and have it filled with users. You have to open your reservation desk, see what your reservations are to schedule your people. So, and, and a good percentage of the hotels along the strip have chosen not to reopen until they see how their sister properties are doing. Because at least now they've got some expenses under control. But once you open and call in help, you're going to pay them whether you have customers spending money or not. These are incredible challenges that these places have to foresee. It really is. And we're at the end of the radio show right now. So we've got about 30 seconds left. You hear the, the music coming in right now. Ron, leave us with something positive as we close out the radio show. Okay. The best guidance I could give people is as you make choices in life, there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. You're going to be faced with choices on how to deal with your vendors and your employees. When you have a choice, never a wrong time to do the right thing. And you'll be happy with yourself in the future and your employees will stay behind you. Thank you so much for those words of encouragement. Hey, we've been dealing with some tough issues today on the Answers That Count. I am Charles Musgrove, your host. Thank you for joining us. Stick around. We're going to have a little bit more conversation with Ron Corey the author of Tenacity. I'm Charles Musgrove. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. Peace. Answers That Count is brought to you by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting needs, visit beanteam.com for more info. You can listen to more episodes of Answers That Count on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio, or visit AnswersThatCount.com. Ryan, that was yes, good. Sir. Man, you know, it's... Uh, Thanks for all those that are sticking around for the show. We want to wrap up here here with Ron. Ron, it's, um, you know, I hope we didn't dominate the conversation so far about COVID. It's, uh, it's what you see on the news. It's what we're dealing with. This, this is um, real-time uh, current issue. So it's hard to avoid it. And I think it's uh, to get your perspective on that, being in that business for so many years, I think is important. And thank you for sharing sharing with that and, and uh, giving that hope at the end, you know, there's uh, we all are going to have difficult challenges ahead of us, uh, whether it relates to COVID or not. So thank you for that. My pleasure. I hope your listeners find whatever I brought to the table. Interesting. I think it is. And uh, for those that are still watching, check out this book tenacity. Uh, Ron, do you have any, um, and how, how long did you, how long were you in the Marines? Two years. When I enlisted during the Vietnam era, it was not a very popular war. So while Marine enlistment was normally a minimum of four to six years, I could enlist for a two-year term. So I did that. And I thought, well, if I like it enough, I can re-enlist. And in, inside of 18 months, I was lucky enough to achieve three promotions. So it's rare to reach E4 corporal in 18 months in any branch of the service. I was a corporal within 18 months, and by my two-year enlistment term ending, 
I would have been promoted to sergeant had I re-enlisted. But as the book describes, I had found Vegas. I was coming here on weekends and I saw my future here. I saw opportunity in what was a small town at the time. I made a buddy in the Marines who uh, was from South Philly. I was from South Brooklyn. We grew up in much the same neighborhood. So we came to Vegas together and he ended up being my business partner. So Describe the changes that you've seen in Las Vegas in that time period. It's got to be just, just crazy. Oh, we went from a town of a couple of hundred thousand people where you could actually have a new idea. No one had done it before and start a business. Now we're over 2 million people living here. We're a big city now. You know, the hotels used to be two and three story motel styled uh, properties. Now these towers are 30, 40 stories tall. This town has evolved in ways that, that people could not foresee when I got here in 1973. Yeah, and it's, uh, call it luck or, or whatever it is. It's, uh, that had to be amazing to, to live through that evolution of Las Vegas. Yeah, I'm sorry for that interruption. That's all right. I was just saying the, to live through that evolution of Las Vegas had to be amazing. Oh, it absolutely was. And as evidenced by the level of success Dan Hughes and I experienced, uh, a couple of guys with maybe, maybe 500 bucks between us got to town out of the Marine Corps. Both went to work, making a living, meeting gals who we married, later had children with, and turned that into multiple businesses, employing hundreds, if not over a thousand people combined. Uh, one business, our graphics company, designed and printed slot machine fronts at a time when gaming was growing. We grew that from four people and a $100,000 SBA loan to 120 employees with over $12 million a year in sales. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a success. Thank you. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure to get to know you and to have you on our show today. I wish you the best of success with the book and whatever else you take on as a challenge out there. I know you're probably uh, looking for things right now. Well, at the end of the book, it talks about a project I'm in with Andre Agassi called Square Panda, which is a learning tool for young children to read and spell. I'm a big investor in that company, as is Andre. We're on the board of directors. And uh, marketing the book has become somewhat of a full-time job for me to make it a success. In November, pre-COVID, I was contacted by a New York City production company who wanted to make my book a movie. And I told uh, him I was true. very interested. Yeah. And then what? COVID hit, and he closed his New York production office until the COVID thing ended. So he's working from home in New Jersey right now. And that kind of put everything on hold. Well, maybe that'll come back. So uh, best of luck to you with that. And uh, keep us posted on, on the work that you're doing with Andre Agassi. I'm assuming he's living there still in Las Vegas too. Oh, absolutely. He's living here, raising a family here. He's an active board member with me. And people can check out Square Panda at squarepanda.com. It's a great product. We'll check into that. And Ron, thank you. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Good meeting you, Charles.